Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 65 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, which was the management rights company founded by entrepreneur Tony DeFries, which completely transformed the way that artists were able to forge their careers. Angie just went and just started physically attacking the cops, pushing them out of the way so the kids could get down there for the finale of the show. It was all show business. She had to have those kids down there. That was part of the show. Main Man worked with legendary innovators in the 70s like John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Lou Reed, Marianne Faithful, Iggy Pop, Amanda Lear and David Bowie. And that's when we started doing the most weird kind of musical things like Chim Chimery and uh, Mars from the Planet Suite. So I just didn't know what, where I was going, but I just knew I was writing. And I had in my head that some idea that I wanted to put some kind of musical thing together. For this episode, we're continuing our chat with Tony Zanetta at home in New York City, recalling that amazing transformative period in David Bowie's life 50 years ago as he was enjoying a fantastic creative peak and all the associated benefits that his new lifestyle afforded him. Z, I've always wanted to ask you about the importance of the legendary Max's Kansas City in New York. It's one of the most iconic venues in the city's history, mostly in the late 60s and 70s, as the epicenter of Warhol's world, which attracted all those fantastic outcasts immortalised in Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. You visited there a lot, and Bowie was fascinated by the place. What was it that made Max's so legendary? Well, Max's... I knew about Max's probably 1967 or 8, because I had a roommate who I was pretty young, but I had a roommate who was an artist and he worked for uh, he worked for Jasper Johns for a while and he worked for Donald Judd for a while because Max's business was, was Ma- Mickey Ruskin ba- built his business off of being an artist's bar. So he would give the artists credit for work. He would, he would barter. And my friend Gary, who lived with me for a while, would, I don't know if these things were being thrown out or he just took, I, I, mean, I mean, I had some Donald Judd, I didn't know who Donald Judd was, but I had Donald Judd pieces in my apartment. And then Gary would bring those to Mickey and a trade for, for uh, uh, credit. So I would go to Max's once in a while with Gary, but I didn't really start going there a lot until 1970 when I got involved with um, the ridiculous theatrical scene and Tony and Gracia's play, the play that he directed of, of Wayne County's World Birth of a Nation, where I met Cherry and Lee Childers and where the whole thing started for me. And we would go to Max's quite a bit. And Max's in those days was still very much driven by the Warhol superstars. The ridiculous people, especially the playhouse of the ridiculous, was kind of the theatrical arm of the Warhol scene. A lot of There was a lot of cross... You know, like Mary Warrenov worked, was a Warhol superstar. She was also a ridiculous superstar. Uh, Dean, um, Taylor Mead, uh, Ultraviolet, a lot of them went back and forth. So that was the, and, 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 and Max's was like, 
well, was there was, there was a, a downstairs and an upstairs. The downstairs was a long bar and a long dining room. That's mainly where the artists hung out. And that, and that was kind of a kind of macho, uh, abstract, expressionist, you know, the, the scene. The back room, which was actually a small room, was pop art and more gay because the pop artists tended to be gay <laughs> in the playhouse and a lot of madness. It was like a crazy, crazy scene. One of the Warhol stars was Andrea Warhola Whips. She was in heat and trash and she would get up on the table and, and scream, it's showtime. And she would lift her dress up and start dancing and carrying on. She later threw herself off of it out of a window in a 12-story apartment building to her death. But anyway, so, you know, it was very drug-fueled and uh, pretty wild. They didn't have that much music upstairs then. Um, yes, there was music upstairs occasionally. It was most famous for the Velvet Underground, but that was only a week in one year, I, I don't know, 1969 or 70 or something like that. But the, the music scene at Max's didn't happen until... After Miss Mickey Ruskin left, sold Max's, that was under a different regime, Tommy Dean, and that didn't happen until like 1975. That's when the New York bands were all playing the upstairs at Max's. In those days, like an, an, uh, through 1974, there would be occasional music upstairs, but there was dancing. There was like a jukebox, and there was there, no. There'd be a DJ, and there would be dancing upstairs sometimes. That wasn't every night either. So mainly, the the action of Max's was downstairs, in that back room. And that that's the other thing. It evolved slowly, so that by the time like David was in New York, there were a lot of music journalists: uh, Lisa Robinson, um, Danny Fields. Um, a guy named Danny Goldberg. Anyway, a lot of the people that wrote for the music uh, magazines and papers also hung out at Max's back room. And then some of the rock stars started hanging out there, mainly like Rick Derringer and his wife Liz Derringer. Um, well, they all did eventually. Alice Cooper, David, Lou Reed. Who else? Patti Smith and Robert Maplethorpe were there then. David Johansson, the New York Dolls. I guess so. I don't, it's funny because I don't remember David Johansson from Max's back room. He, maybe he was a little bit too young. But his w first wife, Sorinda, was like the queen of the back room, Sorinda Fox. And, of course, David had a little affair. Well, both David and Angie had an affair with Sorinda. <laughs> she was on the road with us for a while on the first tour. But she, she later married David Johansson, and then after that married Steven Tyler. Anyway, um, so the, 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 the back room kind of evolved into this, like, yeah, rock star. Todd Rundgren and his girlfriend, B.B. Buell, they were regulars. And David would go to Max's when he was there. But it was also fashion, Jane Fonda, movie stars, you know, it was everybody went through there. New York was like a little bit more of a small town in those days, at least that, that um, milieu. You know, like what's considered downtown now was actually a very small scene. It wasn't like thousands and thousands of people. It was probably a few hundred people. And most of them would go through Max's. So if you were involved in any kind of creative field, you probably spent a little bit of time at Max. Betsy Johnson, fashion designer. And it was very druggy, mainly speed. Lots of speed at Max's. We recently produced a great radio documentary about Max's Kansas City, which included recollections from Jeff McCormick, who went with David to see Biff Rose in early 73 and ended up seeing one of the very early performances of a rock and roll legend. Here's how Jeff remembers that night. 
being London boys and West End boys, he got very excited about Maxis Kansas City and Iggy and the Velvets and Todd Rundgren, David Johansson of the Dolls and his girlfriend, Sarinda Fox, Alice Cooper also. And of course, David's staff were all ex factory people and their friends like the lovely uh, Wayne County or Jane depending on the night and they were all theatrical and into music and stuff or theatre so we had like a ready-made bunch of friends those faces from New York some of them are pretty scary but you know I've kind of been used to that as a mod being in the West End all night nocturnal people so we went upstairs to Max's Kansas City specifically to see Biff Rose and I wasn't horribly excited by it, to be honest. There were about five people in the audience. We sat down the front because it was empty. <laughs> we, could, we had our choice of seats. Three more at the back somewhere, and David and I, basically. We listened to all of Biff Rowe's stuff, and then this other guy came and sat at the same piano and was playing this droney stuff. It was a, you know, it was a bit... Mary Queen, are We thought, oh my God, no, I don't think we want to be listening to this. So our intention was to uh, drink up and leave. Don't bring up the band. And then all of a sudden this guy got up, strapped on a fender, and this band joined him. And he went straight into this, does this bus stop at 82nd Street, bang right in there. And it was phenomenal. So from this moany guy on the piano was this other guy who was just sensational, right in front of us, you know, like eight feet in front of us. It was one of the most exciting things, exhilarating things I've ever done. What a way to see Springsteen for the first time. Some great recollections from Jeff McCormick visiting Max's Kansas City with Bowie in 73. Z, what are your memories of that night at Max's when David met Lou and Iggy? So the first night, when, when this goes back to the first tour again, when we, uh, the day that David signed to RCA Records, we went out to a dinner that RCA, the Dennis Katz, organized at the Ginger Man in New York on the Upper West Side with those same music people. Lisa Robinson, who was the queen of the journalists, was also married to a guy who was worked in A&R at RCA. So we all went out to dinner. It was probably like 12 people. It was like a bar mitzvah, really. <laughs> and then after dinner, we did go to Max's. And when we got to Max's, Danny, this is a very, very, everybody knows this story. Danny Fields was there, and Iggy happened to be at his, staying with him in New York. And so Danny called Iggy, and Iggy came over to meet David, because David had been talking about him on the radio. And that was, that was the first time they met. And Iggy came to the Warwick the next day, where, where Tony and David were staying, for breakfast. And basically never went home. Tony signed him probably on the spot. And... Iggy was still in a methadone program in Michigan. So he went home to Michigan to his parents' trailer, finished his methadone program, and then Tony brought him to the UK where he recorded and lived for the next few months. And that, that started the whole his relationship with, with Main Man, which went on until we were in Japan on that second tour. And by that time... Tony had rented Iggy and his band a house in the Hollywood Hills. Lee Childers was uh, sent to look after Iggy and be like main man West. And Iggy had uh, deteriorated, gone back into drugs. You know, this is kind of interesting because I think main man gets a little bit of a bad rap 
for this because we didn't really pay that much attention to Iggy because we were pretty busy with David and doing all this touring. And, you know, the focus was on, on, on Bowie, and he was still, that, 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 the whole thing was just still getting off the ground. So Iggy didn't get the, and Iggy was probably pretty needy. He needed more attention from Main Man and from DeFries. So in, in lieu of that, and he wasn't working, he was rehearsing, but he wasn't doing any gigs. There were no tours booked. There was nothing. Anyway, he got back into drugs. And then all kinds of trouble started happening, and uh, one thing after another after, and then but finally we're in Japan, and DeFries had had enough, and that was it. He pulled the plug, and that was the end of Iggy and Main Man. So how was that Japanese tour from your perspective? Well, it was kind of wonderful in one way, and then it was kind of horrific in another way. <laughs> well, tell us about the wonderful part first. Well, Japan's and it was like a magical place. I mean, it was so technologically advanced, which I did, didn't expect. Uh, we stayed at the Imperial Hotel, which was pretty fabulous. We went everywhere on the bullet, bullet train. We went to, you know, every city in Japan to play. The crowds were very receptive. But they were very, like, you know, they were, like, they would come to the gig in their uniforms from school. It was like, you know, Japan was still very traditional. We had dinner at Kansai Yamamoto's apartment. His wife dressed in traditional Japanese garb and served us. That's where... <laughs> You would see about at least 25, 30% of the women in Japan at that time, 1973, were still wearing traditional clothing. Um, we had a girl working with us. Her name was Yako. She kind of was our, like our guide, a Japanese girl. She was the only, I mean, and they, they would, the, the, the Japanese would stop and stare at Yako because she had like a few Western, you know, she was like dressed in Western garb. They were like fascinated by anything Western, but they, they hadn't really permeated Japan yet. They loved him because what he was doing was kind of a hybrid because using all these uh, uh, Kansai Yamamoto clothes, which were based on traditional kabuki. So here was this Western guy, a British guy, looking like a kabuki actor in a way. You know, it was really kind of fascinating. Cause a lot of the, and a lot of his movements even came from Japanese theater. It's interesting because the Playhouse of the Ridiculous that I worked with and and Lindsay Kemp's theater company that David worked with both had a lot of Japanese elements. They were both very, very, very influenced by Japanese theater. And they, they also had other similarities in that they weren't like hybrids of anything. Like Lindsay's, Lindsay's uh, philosophy was you take a little bit from this and a little bit from that, you know, a little, little circus, a little burlesque, a little drag, a little Japanese the theater, and you mix it all together and you create something new because his, his certainly wasn't traditional mime. And that was with the Playhouse also, and that was David's background. So we had, we all had that in common, and, and that was kind of a common language. But that was part of the success in, in in Japan. The bad part of Japan for me as the road manager was the Japanese, and I didn't understand this. The Japanese never say no. It's just not. It's, it's, it's impolite. You don't say no, but that doesn't mean that you mean yes. <laughs> So we would be planning, like, what happened was our security. We had a show that had a, we had an intermission. So what we liked to do was have very tight security in the first part of the show. And then at the intermission, we liked to remove the security so that the concert could build. It had like a natural build to it. And it would get very excited. And then the kids would like realize there was no more security. And they could get out of their seats and start dancing and rush the stage. 
But it had to be done, you had to do it kind of carefully. And they agreed to it, but they, didn't, but they did it backwards. And we had a real problem one night, because they, they had, um, they, didn't, they started the show with absolutely no security. And the kids immediately rushed the stage. And then, during the break, they started putting guards everywhere and chairs. And, and, <laughs> and Angie Bowie and I went crazy and took the chairs and started throwing them. And, oh, it was, and anyway, at the end of it, all these theaters in Japan were kind of new. And the dressing rooms were downstairs. And they all had like um, an elevated orchestra pit in the front. So when the kids ru rushed the stage, they rushed the orchestra pit. When we went down to the dressing rooms at the end of the show, the orchestra pit, the elevator, the, the structure had actually bent from the weight <laughs> of the kids jumping up. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was like bad. And um, I don't know. I got out of there pretty quick. That's all I remember. <laughs> After Ziggy was retired and pinups followed, by then Main Man was incredibly busy and successful. How did all that change the dynamics as people became accustomed to the rock star lifestyle? So that was more DeFries in New York now is the mega manager, the mogul. David is in London living the life of a pop star, which he had never, you know, he had been, that was his goal since he was like seven years old. Now that summer, that was fulfilled. That's when he started dating uh, Amanda and hanging out with Mick Jagger and, and going out with Marianne Faithful. And that's when, at some point, the drugs began to come in because David was drug-free until that point. There were no drugs around. But then the coke started, and then the limos, and the, the you know every, everybody had to have a driver, and he had Jim James, and a, his he, well, he had an Imperial, and Dave and Tony had a big old Cadillac with his driver <laughs> in New York to ferry him back and forth between Greenwich and, and Manhattan. The other thing is that we got somewhere along that time, we outgrew 58th Street, so. I rented a loft, coincidentally, around the corner from where we're doing this interview. It was on 18th Street. And I guess that was my fantasy, that I was trying to recreate the factory, or Andy Warhol's factory, because it was a loft, it was downtown, and blah, 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 blah. Well, DeFries hated the loft. He, I don't think he, you know, he stepped foot in that loft maybe once or twice. So that when we were doing the Midnight Special, I went. I, I was in London for the Midnight Special to help David like organize the Midnight Special. And while I was in London doing, so that would have been October. DeFries found four hundred five Park Avenue, which was, which was basically very much like the gem group of offices that he had come from with Lawrence Myers. So DeFries was going towards this very corporate kind of business empire and that began to happen during that year also so we got you get rid of the loft rented these so the suite of offices on park avenue and had his place in greenwich and david by that david didn't david soon moved to chelsea to a townhouse during that year also so he went from haddon hall to maida vale and then to a townhouse in cheney walk around the corner from Mick Jagger. <laughs> and the rock managers, a lot of the big music biz guys, lived in Greenwich. They both began to live the life. That's when he started working on Diamond Dogs. 
I think that was some of his best work, and then and then it segued into the Young Americans. Think to me personally, what was fascinating about what he did was he didn't stop taking chances. I mean, to 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 work so many years and get nowhere, and then find that magic formula with Ziggy, and then drop it, and go into doing Diamond Dog. And Diamond Dogs wasn't like that radical a departure from Ziggy, but it was. I mean, it was very. It was. It was definitely a, a shift. I think the idea was. He wanted to work, he wanted to do a West End musical based on 1984, but we couldn't get the rights. But he actually started working on it, and I think those songs were originally written with that in mind. And we had sent Tony Ingrassia, the lovely director of Pork and World Birth of a Nation, who we had also signed during the... See, then Main Man began to spread its tentacles. At that during that year as well, and some of the, the some of the ways that we were spreading out was not totally dictated by Bowie. One of those ways was Tony Ingrassia, who was my friend, who was kind of who kind of. I mean, I always looked at Tony Ingrassia as being the beginning of this whole part of my life. And um, anyway, we sent Tony Ingrassia to London to work with David on this 1984 piece. Well, two men couldn't be more opposite in their working. I mean, that did not work at all. <laughs> I won't say use the word disaster, but it wasn't good. So that did not happen. Then to do Diamond Dogs, which was phenomenal and expensive and a huge set and quite a production. It was incredible and it was getting incredible reaction to step away from that, drop it and go into doing Young Americans in that soul tour. Oh, my God. <laughs> Some would consider it crazy. <laughs> but now we're getting ahead of ourselves. But yeah, We'll save that for our next chat. Yes, I think so. Yeah, thanks. Okay, Des, fine. Okay. Tony Zanetta with some really interesting recollections from the period 50 years ago when David Bowie was enjoying the excitement of finally achieving the rock stardom he'd been pursuing for so long and Main Man was flourishing. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from that era on the Main Man label website, along with a huge collection of other historic documents, including articles, telexes, letters, and production notes, many of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw. This is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.